Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. Well, another Hanami season has come to a close in Japan, and if you were in Tokyo for it, you'll likely have noticed a considerable increase in the amount of international tourists taking part. And tourism levels aren't the only thing that's up. Two weeks ago, it was announced that the number of foreign residents in the country rose 11.4% from a year earlier, hitting a record high of 3,075,213 people. According to the Immigration Services Agency, that total included around 760,000 people from China, the largest group by nationality, 490,000 individuals from Vietnam, and 411,000 from South Korea. While Japan has a reputation for being reluctant on immigration, these numbers show that people are still keen on coming here, and in doing so, they're going to have to find jobs and they'll experience Japanese work culture firsthand. That's where Rochelle Kopp comes in. She works with Japanese businesses here to advise them on Western work culture and vice versa. And she writes a column for the Japan Times on issues non-Japanese employees face in Japanese workplaces. Before speaking with her, though, I'll talk to community reporter Anika Osaki-Exum about a new push the Japanese government is proposing to boost the number of inbound and outbound foreign exchange students. Anika, welcome to Deep Dive. Hi, Sean. Thank you for having me. Last week, you wrote an article titled, Japan Makes a Renewed Push to Internationalize Higher Education. What is this push that the government's proposing? So the bottom line is that the government wants to increase international educational exchange. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida announced that the goal is to ultimately attract 400,000 students from overseas and then send 500,000 Japanese students abroad for study annually. Yeah, this is part of Kishida's new capitalism campaign, which hasn't been a huge success, at least in the sense that he first wanted to focus on wealth redistribution, but shifted to concentrating on growth after some negative reaction. However, the growth strategy includes things like promoting decarbonization, supporting startups, and investing in human resources. So where does this push for more student exchange fit in? So I think all of this falls under that last point, right, of investing in human resources. Okay, so the goals that the government has set out, how do the numbers compare to previous years? Yeah, so the number of inbound students was increasing steadily pretty much until 2019 when it hit around 319,000 students, which was one of the outcomes of a 300,000 student goal the government set in 2003. Okay. But in terms of outbound students, that's Japanese students going overseas, the total number was a bit over 115,000 in 2018 down to roughly 107,000 in 2019. Then, of course, it shot way down in 2020 with the pandemic hitting around 1,400 students. Now, the government wants to prioritize drawing and dispatching students who want to study for a longer term. And in regard to foreign students, maybe even stay in Japan for a while after graduating. But when it comes to Japanese students or outbound students, the reality is the numbers are pretty low when it comes to those studying abroad for longer periods of time. Um, The number of long-term outbound students had been on the decline, going from 80,000 in the early 2000s to around 60,000 in 2012. That number had plateaued pretty much leading up to 2019. And even like right before the pandemic, it said that around 70% of outbound students studied abroad for less than a month. And then, of course, again, the pandemic saw travel halted both ways um, and For both outbound and inbound students, the numbers were super low as the pandemic hit. Right. So travel was halted. 
And Japan's border restrictions um, held out longer than most countries, which upset inbound foreign students and the community of educators more generally. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. I spoke to Hilary Holbro, an assistant professor of Japanese politics and society at Indiana University, and she emphasized the fact that there was pretty heavy criticism of Japan during the pandemic. Um, a lot of inbound students even started giving up on plans to study here and chose other countries as alternatives. So this new proposal is the government's push to get them back. You also spoke to Hiroshi Ota, a professor of international education at Hitotsubashi University in Tokyo. And he worked on previous government pushes to increase the number of foreign students here. What did he have to say about this announcement? Yeah, so Professor Ota was pretty skeptical as to why the government chose these numbers and how they would accomplish these goals. His main criticism was that he didn't see any of the groundwork done in order to come up with those numbers, at least not publicly. Um, He he was part of the process for the previous 300,000 student goal for which he said rationale and planning was crucial. Uh, I won't get into all that he said was part of the planning there back then because we're on a schedule today. But from his experience back then, he said he would like to see a similar macro approach to these goals. So that means not just focusing on the education front, but also on other systems that will be at play like business and employment, as well as social and cultural systems that students will inevitably have to deal with outside of school, both in Japan and abroad. He also said that getting to 500,000 Japanese students is a tough task, especially while a recent government figure said over 60% of Japanese high school students don't want to study abroad. Something he brought to me as a point of consideration, um, just as a way of looking at things, was Mm. that just under 800,000 babies were born in Japan in 2022. So in order to hit 500,000 Japanese students going abroad, this would mean that over half of the kids born last year would be studying abroad in some way. And the government's preference would be that these students studied abroad for longer periods of time, which, again, seems like a tall ask to the professor. What's the reason for this aversion to going overseas to study? So according to that initial proposal by the government, the reasons include financial concerns, which is understandable considering how lofty tuition can be in places like where I went to school in the States, Mm. and then also concerns about language barriers and missing out on Shukatsu or the employment process, which is pretty strict and scheduled in Japan. Yeah, shukatsu is kind of a year-long process that includes multiple job fairs, interviews with companies, and defined dates as to when you need to have these accomplished. Yeah, exactly. Um, in, in my chat with Professor Tetsuo Morishita at Sofia University in Tokyo, he said he's heard these concerns directly from students. But he also added that Japanese students nowadays are pretty comfortable in Japan. And for a lot of them, they feel like they don't need to go as far as going abroad in order to be successful here. Okay, so they're more inward looking. Yeah. And Professor Ota was pretty much on the same page as him, adding that unlike his generation who saw immense growth and abundance due to the post-war economic boom, this generation of young people have seen years of stagnation as well as a pandemic making their hopes pretty practical and small. And he said they're more self-contained. And a lot of them are really just looking for the small, happy moments in life. Mm. Getting back to inbound students, one long-standing issue with that group is that many have said in the past that it was difficult to be able to find jobs here after graduation. Yeah, so it looks and, and sounds like that's been the case. But what these professors told me is that things are getting better, not because of any government policy, but just from pure economic need. 
Professor Holbro mentioned that 10 years ago in her field research, it was hard to find anybody willing to hire non-Japanese employees. But increasingly, Japanese businesses want to be competitive in a global market. And so they're increasing their hiring of foreigners with varied backgrounds and language abilities. Well, if you want to read more about this topic from Annika, then I'll put a link to her story in the show notes. Annika, thanks very much for coming on Deep Dive. Thank you so much for having me. Rochelle Kopp is the managing principal at Japan Intercultural Consulting and works with Japanese companies that start operations overseas and overseas firms that expand into Japan. At the start of 2019, however, she began writing regularly for the Japan Times with advice and explanations on how to deal with Japanese corporate culture as a non-Japanese employee. Rochelle, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Michelle, I've learned a lot from your contributions to the Japan Times about navigating this country's work culture. The pandemic saw you switch your focus to other subjects, as many workers were prevented from coming into Japan. But you're back in the pages this week with an article titled Help Wanted, the Sleeper Agent of Change, which talks about the recent big tech layoffs overseas and how Japan may try to benefit from them. What made you want to write about this? Well, speaking to the Financial Times, Hitachi Chief Executive Keith Kojima said that this could be a quote-unquote big opportunity for Japan to snatch up laid-off workers who may want to try living and working in Japan or working for a Japanese company. Hmm. And, you know, Japan is a country that obviously lots of people want to visit here, but also a lot of people are interested in living here. Um, my base in the U.S. is Silicon Valley, and a lot of people there are very enamored with Japan okay. and see it as a place so oh, it would be fun to try and live there. Okay, so in your piece, actually, you refer to them as agents of change. So what do you mean by that? Well, a lot of Japanese companies now want to be getting into the digital era and be updating what they're doing, doing more innovation. And they see hiring people from outside Japan as a way to accomplish that goal. Okay, you also say that while this idea sounds great coming from a top executive like Kojima, Anyone who comes over may find resistance in other areas of the company. Can you explain that a little bit for us? Oh, certainly. So while the people at the top of the company or in HR might have this great kind of idea and concept of we're going to bring people in and they're going to spark innovation. Well, the sparking of innovation often comes from different cultures colliding, and that's not always a lot of fun for everybody. <laughs> and also the middle management or the, the, the people who are going to be working directly with these new hires, they didn't necessarily ask for anyone to come in and shake up their world, yeah. and they might be resistant to that. Okay. Why wouldn't they want to change in line with the ideas that are coming from above? Um, because they're not necessarily um, getting a clear goal from above of here's what you need to change. Right. And there's a lot of nervousness if we do things differently than we've done it before. Things might not go well. I might get blamed. I might get in trouble. There might be a problem. There's a lot of nervousness about that. So it can't just be a kind of like, you know, blanket kind of goal that's or a vague goal that someone wants to kind of push on the rest of the company they kind of it's up to the top execs to kind of explain this a little bit more to the other people in the company yes that's true unfortunately i i don't see them doing that very often it often remains at that more vague kind of level okay so knowing this in advance 
is there anything a prospective agent of change can hammer out in the interview process to try to ensure that they'll be able to do their job when they get here without interference? Um, not to be really honest, not really. <laughs> okay. Um, they, you know, the, first of all, are you even interviewing with the actual people that you're going to be working with? A lot of times in Japanese companies, you're not. You're only talking with someone in HR. Also, in the interview process, and this is true anywhere, people want to make it sound good. Right. And it's hard to get into the details of how exactly am I going to do my work. Okay, so what should those people do then? Well, just like if you were working for a Western company, you have to understand your corporate culture and you have to understand the way things are done in that firm. And in Japanese companies, that can be a little bit more complicated because their corporate cultures are going to probably be more different than what you're used to. Um, but you want to understand, you know, how does the company get things done? How do you make a proposal? How do you get buy-in for that proposal? How do you get that proposal adopted? Um, what is it that the tr company is trying to do? And how can you connect what you're doing to that overall initiative? And how do you sort of create relationships with the right people in order to push things forward? Okay, so you kind of explain in the article, okay, so that's the process for making a proposal. Uh, learning what themes the company is pursuing, and then kind of knowing who to speak to. And I think you use the term nemawashi in your piece. Can you explain what that means? Certainly. So nemawashi is a really interesting term in Japanese business. It's originally from the world of gardening. Oh. And ne is root, and mawashi means go around. And it's a technique that's used when transplanting trees. If you just take a tree and just dig it up all at once and you know, dump it in another place in the garden, it's often going to go into shock and die. Right. So Japanese gardeners came up with a technique for working around the roots and um, sort of clipping them carefully and binding them and getting the tree ready to be moved and doing it over a period of time so it's not so much of a shock. Huh. And so in Japanese business... They started to use the term for people who would go and talk to each key decision maker one-on-one -on -one and get them on board. Right, right. So it's like you're going around to the roots of the tree, getting the tree ready. You're getting the organization ready. All right. So nemawashi is a key skill for any agents of change to have if they want to make an impact. Yes, exactly. And again, it's going to take a little while to do that, but it's absolutely not impossible. And once you figure out the way to get things done in your organization, you can be very effective and you can make things happen. Um, you'll need to also be building up some goodwill and a track record okay. that people aren't going to automatically trust you or take your word for things. They need to get to know you and you have to build up your credibility. Right. And that's by doing good work and also building relationships with people. Rochelle, as I mentioned before, you've written a lot of other pieces for the Japan Times on corporate culture in Japan. Some of the ones I can remember off the top of my head were how to deal with superiors as a non-Japanese woman in a Japanese company. There is one on how to get a raise and another one on how to deal with a micromanaging boss. And then during the pandemic, you wrote a few pieces on how corporate culture thinking was being applied to how the Japanese government was dealing with the pandemic. It was a lot of good stuff and people should check them out. But I have a basic question for you. If you're starting a new job in Japan, what's the best thing you can do on your first day? 
Well, the usual ritual when you're joining a Japanese company, if you're not part of that fresh college graduate group that starts on April 1st, is you'll be introduced to everyone in your department and sometimes neighboring departments. And I remember when I did this, you know, we were meeting 30 plus people at once. It's kind of overwhelming. But that's your chance to like get everyone's name down, figure out what they do. If you can, have just exchange a few words with them to kind of find out something about them that will help you remember them. But I remember when it happened to me and I'm like, oh, well, this is just a blur. And then I was really sorry later that I hadn't paid a little bit more attention. Right. So right. I would really um, try and focus on trying to understand who all the players are. Okay. So take names. Okay. Right. Or business cards. <laughs> or business cards. Yeah. Um, what is the most common challenge that non-Japanese employees ask for your help on? I think probably the biggest issue is communication. Okay. And I would say the second issue is decision-making and, and getting things done. You And again, often those are very closely connected to each other as well. Okay. With communication, can you just expand on that a little bit? Certainly. Well, Japanese communication style tends to be rather indirect, and it also tends to be rather vague. So this means that for people from a lot of other cultures, it's often very difficult to tell was that answer I just got a yes, or was it a no, or is it a maybe, or what should I do? Deciphering the messages that you're getting can, can be often challenging. Okay. You also work with a lot of Japanese companies who are going overseas. So I'm going to ask that question again, but let's switch the roles around. What is the most common challenge that Japanese businesses have in dealing with a majority non-Japanese workforce? Well, it's really the mirror image on the communication side, because for Japanese companies, when they're dealing with non-Japanese employees, they have to be a lot more clear and a lot more explicit about things than they would need to be in Japan. In Japan, there's this idea of which is if someone tells you 10%, you're going to be able to figure out the other 90%. Right. And Japanese are really good at this. It's you know, reading between the lines or yomu. There's lots of different words for this in Japanese. Uh -huh. And it's part of Japanese culture. But for people from a lot of other cultures, if you want us to know all 10, you have to say all 10. Right. And so for Japanese, um, so many times when they go outside Japan, they tell me, oh, well, they didn't get what I was trying to say. And then you know, often they realize, well, maybe I wasn't clear enough. Okay. And sometimes I help them, help them to realize that that's what the issue was. But um, learning to put more things into words rather than having it be an implicit assumption, that's often a big challenge for Japanese because it's not something that they need to do in Japan. So it's not a skill that they build in Japan. Mm. Also, they're usually doing it in English. So they're doing it in their second language where right. you know, you're going to be more limited in your communication ability. So it's kind of a double whammy there. Huh, interesting. Um, finally, if you're living and working in Japan, then before long, you're going to get involved in the community and you've picked up a side issue that you're working on regarding trees being cut down in Tokyo. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? So I've become a tree hugger in my spare time, <laughs> and I've been working to call for revision of the redevelopment plan of Jingu Gaian. Okay. So Jingu Gaian is the large park area that's next to the new national stadium, and it has um, the Jingu Stadium, baseball stadium. It uh -huh. has the Chichibunomiya Rugby Stadium. It has a um, second baseball stadium slash 
golf practice center, batting domes, indoor um, ball courts, some cafes. It has a famous um, four rows of ginkgo trees and also lots of other trees all over the grounds and also um, softball fields. So it's a kind of a big sports slash nature complex. And there is a development plan to tear down the both stadiums, switch their locations. The only reason for switching the locations is to make room for high-rise buildings, Mm -hmm. which are going to be hotels and office buildings, Um, sort of very much a a profit-oriented development, and thousands of trees are going to be chopped down. And this is just such a terrible plan that was developed in dark, smoky rooms without any public (laughs) participation. And the more you learn about it, the more just, just awful it is, basically. Right. You managed to get the support of a very famous ally on the topic last week. That was musician Ryuchi Sakamoto, who also, we just found out, passed away in late March. Um, That news broke earlier this week. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe his involvement in this or other people's support that you're getting? Oh, certainly. So let me talk a little bit about Sakamoto-san. So he, obviously, he's a a famous composer and musician and much beloved in Japan. And he um, has, for years, been involved in social issues and environmental issues. And in fact, he's the um, daiho, which would be sort of the nominal head of a um, MPO that's devoted to increasing the number of trees. Uh So trees has been an interest of his for a long time. So in um, March, he wrote a letter to Yuriko Koike, to the head of the education ministry. So Yuriko Koike is Tokyo's governor. Yes, Mm -hmm. Tokyo's governor, the head of the education ministry, the head of the um, national transportation ministry, and to the heads of Shinjuku and Minato wards. Mm -hmm. And so these are all different government entities that have some role in the approval process or some say over the development. And so he wrote a letter um, to all of them with a very similar sentiment to the petition that I started saying that this is a... um, a development project that has not had sufficient public input, that is destroying historical structures, destroying too much nature. There ought to be a, a different way to update this area that's not so destructive to history. Right. And calling on um, Governor Koike to show her leadership in this area. And so that um, gained a lot of attention in the Japanese press because he is such a beloved figure. And he kind of, even when he made the statement, he said, you know, I'm, I'm too weak to even make music anymore. I'm not in good shape. But I felt like I had to say this or I would regret not having tried to do something. Wow. So um, and he passed away. And um, a lot of people said, wow, well, this was basically his dying wish. Yeah. And um, people are, again, paying a lot of attention to this. And, you know, I, I have to think he did that on purpose. Yeah. I think he, you know, he was very ill, and I think he knew he didn't have much time left. And, again, he had, throughout his life, tried to make his impact on various issues. And there's a, a quote that I saw of him that he had said at one point, if I don't speak out, I, I I feel stressed. I feel like I need to raise my voice on things. So that was a big kind of part of his personality, and he did that on this as well. Yeah, he'll definitely be missed. If people want to find out more about this project, where is the best place for them to go? 
Um, let's see. So you can always catch me on social media. I'm on Twitter <laughs> at Japan Intercult, which is a abbreviation for Japan Intercultural, my company. Um, you can get me on Facebook or LinkedIn. Also, um, I have a petition on change.org for opposing the Jingu Gaian redevelopment plan. Okay, we'll put those links into the show notes. Rochelle Kopp, thanks very much for coming back to Deep Dive. Okay, thank you. Thanks again to Rochelle and Annika for joining me on Deep Dive. I'll put links to their articles and socials in the show notes. Elsewhere in the Japan Times this week, we mentioned it in the chat with Rochelle, but this week we learned of the passing of Ryuji Sakamoto of Yellow Magic Orchestra fame. He was also the first Japanese musician to win an Oscar for his work on the 1989 film The Last Emperor. Culture writer James Hadfield has written a fantastic tribute titled The Unyielding Spirit of Ryuji Sakamoto. I definitely recommend checking it out. And Sakamoto's passing comes only a few months after the death of his YMO bandmate Yukihiro Takahashi. Their collective work inspired everything from Japanese pop and indie to New York hip-hop and Detroit techno. They'll truly be missed. And Kazuaki Nagata has written a piece on how Japanese companies are grappling with ChatGPT, the AI chatbot that some are praising as a revolution in the way we do business and others fear could bring about the end of humanity. It's definitely worth reading up on these AI services. You can find tons of pieces on japantimes.co.jp. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, please be sure to tell a friend and leave us a rating or review on whatever podcasting platform you use. Both those things will help others find the show. Production for Deep Dive is by Dave Cortez. Our intern is Natalia Makohon. The outgoing song was written and produced by Oscar Boyd. And our theme song is by the Japanese musician 4L. Until next time, I'm Sean McKenna. Otsukare-sama. Otsukare-sama.